My name is Ben. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. I want to uh, I want to just add my welcome to the one I hope you received, and I pray that your experience at Grace Chapel today would be one of certainly hospitality um, from us, but that you would feel the hospitable welcome of God, who loves you and cares for you deeply. Um, there's, we always have a lot of things going on at the church and we don't always have the, the time to announce them. So I always direct people to our website. If you're looking to get connected at the church, if, you, if you're looking to connect with the pastor or learn about small groups or the different Bible studies that we have uh, going on, uh, make sure that you check out our website because you can connect to us there. Um, I also want to mention just we went down to one service this summer and so parking can be uh, parking can be uh, an issue. People have been great, however, the last two Sundays about parking a distance away and walking if they can. Keep that up. I want to welcome back our our high school youth from their mission trip. Welcome back, guys. <laughs> Heard it was an amazing trip. And they want to invite you on Sunday, June 25th to join them after worship, to hear how the Lord has worked in and through them during their time in St. Louis. Think about how encouraged they would be if a ton of us came to listen, and we would be encouraged as well. And then finally, one of our just steady ministries that blesses so many people at Grace Chapel is our Mercy Meals ministry. And so when someone gets sick, when someone's just in a time of hurt, when someone's just had a kid, there's just an army of people who make uh, meals and deliver meals to people's homes. And as one who has been a recipient of Mercy Meals, it is such a great gift um, in certain seasons of our life. And so we're looking for people who will volunteer to be on our Mercy Meals team to prepare and deliver meals uh, as they are requested. And so if you're interested in doing that as the need arises, you can go, you can email the office at office at gracepca.com. All right. What I'm going to do now before we turn uh, to look at God's word is I'm just going to take a moment so we can quiet our hearts, gather our scattered senses, and then I'll pray for us. So let's do that now. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we quiet our hearts and we open our ears and we prepare ourselves to listen, believing that you want to speak to us today through your word, a word that is living and active and powerful, a word that you use to to shape and meet, and challenge, and ultimately call us to yourself. And so speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. We give you praise and thanks in Christ's name. Amen. All right, guys. Well, we're continuing our journey through the New Testament letter to the Colossian church. And so we're in the book of Colossians this morning. We find ourselves in chapter 1, and last week we began looking at this epic 
poem about who Christ is, the cosmic Christ. And last week we looked at the first half of the poem. This week we'll look at the second half. Colossians 1, reading verses 15 through 20, we'll be focusing today on verses 18 through 20. So this is Colossians 1, this is God's Word. Speaking of Jesus, Paul says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's where we ended last week. This is where we'll pick it up. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I don't know what you like to do to chillax. I like to golf and learn Elvish. My, my wife likes to do jigsaw puzzles, the big doggers, the big ones that overtake a dining room table for a season. Uh, Sometimes those puzzles become a family affair. And when she takes the box and first dumps out the thousands of pieces on the table, it seems like an almost impossible task lays in front of us. The only thing that keeps a person from throwing that pile of random pieces into the trash or the fire is the picture on the box of what these pieces will ultimately become. We've done mountain landscapes, Disney princesses, the Marauder's Map from Harry Potter, or most recently, like a hundred pop cans lined up in a row. That one was nasty. (laughs) Think about trying to put the puzzle together without the picture. That picture on the box is what makes it possible to do something. Because of the picture, you have the motivation to go to work, piece by piece, starting with the crust (laughs) and moving inside. Without it, the chaos would ultimately overwhelm you and you'd give up. My claim today is that what the box top does for the puzzle, that's what precisely this scripture is supposed to do for the chaotic world that we live in. It gives us a picture of how all of our scattered lives and the scattered pieces of them fit together. And when you pan out 
what you see is a picture of Christ. In all of its exalted language, what this text is saying is that Christ is the one who brings coherence, connection to all the disconnected peoples and all the disconnected pieces of our lives. In him, everything interlocks. In him, it finds its purpose and its meaning. Now, putting together a puzzle is a slow process, painfully slow at times, to the the seemingly endless search for that piece with a little bit of red in it, for example. And occasionally, the reward of fitting the piece in place. How satisfying is that when the peace finds its place. The Bible has a word for that when it happens in our lives. Reconciliation. Putting together, piecing together what belongs together so that it fits in the way that God intended it. That's what Christ is doing with the chaos of this world. That's what he's doing with the chaos in the smaller world of our individual lives, putting together, making them whole, so that when you pan out and look at not just our lives, but our life together at the church, what you see is Christ. He begins by saying, he is the head of the body, the church. If you were with us last week, you get a sense of the shift of focus. In verses 15 through 17, Paul has just talked about the cosmic Christ of creation, who has created all things, who sustains all things, and for whom all things were made. And so when you get to the next verse, when it says, he is the head, what you expect him to say is, he is the head of the universe. He is the head of the totality of all things. (laughs) But that's not what he says. He says he is the head of the church. Literally the assembly. I wonder how that would have come across to this little house church in Colossae. Like before the church was a global movement, there were 12 to 50 people gathered in a little home in a city in Colossae, listening to this poem about the cosmic Christ. And it gets to this point where it says the cosmic Christ is the head of the assembly. And then they say, whoa, 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 take a kiss or who's ever reading this thing. Read that again. Are you telling us that there's some kind of connection between Christ's relationship to the the whole universe and beyond and his relationship to this small gathering of people here in Colossae? Antichicus or Andronicus or whoever it was reading the letter would say, yes, let me read it again. He is the head of the body, the church. And the word head, well, there's lively debate 
about exactly what the word head means here. I think it has at least two possible meanings, and I think both meanings are true. The first is that the head means authority, that Christ has authority over the church. And that's certainly true, isn't it? The church is where God's will is done. Jesus is king of the whole world, but you might say that his kingship isn't recognized everywhere, but the church is the place where you go and you look in and you say, oh, that's what it looks like when God is king. Which means that every week when we come together, we try to live under his authority, which means under his word. It's why we open ancient letters. It's why we express faith and believe that God's spirit is working while we do so. And there's things that the Bible says that we don't like or that challenge us deeply. And instead of doing what we think it should say, we challenge ourselves to do what the scriptures themselves say. I'll tell you that there's a number of times when I'm preparing a sermon throughout the week and I'll see a text in advance and I think I know what that text says and I'm excited about it because it's exactly what I want to talk about. And I get to say, man, I can't wait until June 20-whatever because I get to talk about this thing. And that's the thing that I'm really passionate about. And then you get to the passage and you actually study it and you realize that that's not what it's talking about at all. So I'm really passionate about this thing over here, but that's not what the text is saying. And at that point during the week, I have a choice. Am I the head of the church? Or is Jesus the head of the church? And I have to say no. You're in charge. I have to scrap my preparation and believe that what you say is what you want me to say. So we are the place where God's will is done. So the head means authority. But the head also carries another kind of meaning as the source, like the head of a river, is the beginning and originator and the source of a river, and also it's its, it's, its origin and it's its life force. And that is the same with Christ. He is the source of the church, the originator of the church, and he is the one who supplies us with the grace and mercy, truth, spirit that we need to be the creatures we're called to be. He's the head. It's how the head relates to the body. Head's pretty important. Body can't go very long without the head. Crystal was telling a really gruesome story about her childhood in Mexico when they would take chickens and they would cut the heads off the chickens and race the headless chickens because a body can go a little while without a head, but not too long. And yes, animal rights activists, you may, you may call her in. She's sitting right over there. <laughs> but the head is where we have our eyes. It's what gives us sight. It's the ears, the voice, 
that directs. It's the mouth where the rest, all of the sustenance comes to the body. If you lose your head, you lose your life. And he is the headwaters of a new creation kind of life. A fountain head of life that never runs dry. It supplies wisdom. It supplies truth. It supplies spirit. It supplies everything that we need to live a life in Christ. And of course, as the head gives life to the body, the body is mobilized and animated to do what the head tells it to do so that Christ can be now manifest in the world through us, his hands, his feet. He is the head directing his body to continue his reconciling work on earth as it is in heaven. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the new beginning, it says. Well, actually, it says he is the beginning. I added the word new because I believe that that is Paul's sense. I mean, think about the poem. In verse 15, he's already told us that he's the beginning of all things. And here we're being told again that he is the beginning. The beginning of what? He's already the beginning of all creation. Well, here it's the beginning of new creation. Of a fresh start. And clearly something is left unsaid here. The second half of our poem presumes a problem. A disruption in the totality of all things. A breakdown in God's original intention for the world that he loves. That because of human rebellion and sin, instead of things holding together in Christ, things are flying apart. But God hasn't given up on his creation. He's initiated a fresh start, a new beginning. Not in the sense of scrapping what's already been there and starting again, but in the sense of creating peace, a peace between earth and heaven. Uniting earth and heaven, reconciling the two, beginning with the church. It's what's happening with the whole world, but it begins in earnest in our lives. He is making all things new, but the new creation has its first beachhead in you. Ah, you. The new creation people. A new creation outpost in the midst of a dying world. Remember Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 5. If anyone is in Christ, behold, new creation. The old has passed away, the new is come. Jesus the beginning, the fresh start of a new creation people. Do you know, dear ones, that you can begin again? Do you know that there are many fresh starts available to you in Jesus? 
even after years of running from God, even after years of being away from the church. This week, as I thought about new beginnings and new creation life, I thought about the life of Vincent van Gogh. So a famous Dutch painter who started his life, as uh, his vocational life, as a pastor. And then ultimately sank into doubt and depression and destruction. By the grace of God, later in his life, he began again and took up hope. And he gave that hope in his work a color. And the color is yellow. And as in autumn... I like that color. <laughs> so the best kept secret of Van Gogh's life is the truth that he was, is when you discover the gradual increase of the color yellow in his paintings. And yellow evoked for him the hope and warmth and the truth of God's love. So what is Van Gogh's most famous painting? Anyone? Anyone? Starry Night. So let's go with that one. Starry Night was made in one of his most depressive periods. And I want you to notice the yellow moon and the yellow swirling stars. Because in this period of Van Gogh's life, truth was only found in nature. And I don't know if you can see it because it's dark, but in the bottom in the town, there is a church. And the church is the only place in the town where there is no light. It is completely dark. The only item, only house in the painting in which there is no traces of yellow. Now later on in his life, he paints another painting called The Raising of Lazarus. Do we have it? We might have it. Oh, look at the yellow blindingly bathed in yellow. All things, even himself. And if you look closely, Van Gogh has put his own face on Lazarus to express his hope in the resurrection. Yellow telling the whole story. Beloved, life can begin over again. Each one of us, whether with actual yellows or metaphorical yellows, can begin to paint our fresh, our, 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 our lives with, a, with, the, with the hope of new beginnings. Where has your life reached a dead end? Do you need a fresh start with God? He is the new beginning. Even death is simply the beginning of a new kind of life in Jesus. Next it says he's the firstborn from the dead. It is hard to experience new creation life when you fear death. When death is a reality. Death is so sinister. As we think about the power of decay, nothing can stop death. Mountains can't stop death. Mountains will be torn down to pebbles. The sun and stars can't stop death. 
Death casts a shadow over everything we do and everything we have and everyone we love because nothing is permanent and all our joy is temporary. But he is the firstborn from the dead. Christ broke the power of death. And not only for himself, he's the firstborn of many brothers and sisters, of millions who will one day rise, freed from the fear of death. And you may say, well, I don't fear death. Only a young person says that. But even if they don't fear physical death, they might fear what death will take from them. I was listening to, uh, I've gone back and I've listened to a number of Tim Keller sermons after he's passed, just uh, in honor of his life. And in one of them, he talks about how the fear of death isn't just the fear of physical death itself. It's really the fear of missing out because life will be so short. That we'll never get the career we wanted because we won't have the time to do it. That we will have never gotten to see the mountains that we've wanted to see because we didn't have the time to do it. That we'll never have the family. We'll never have the time to get married. We'll never have this. We'll never have that. It's the fear of death. It's the the reality of, of death creating an eternal FOMO, an eternal fear of missing out. But in one of his sermons, he says this. He says, death won't trump anything for you if you are in Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I am the life. It's all in me. Don't say I'm never going to see the Alps. This is one of my favorite lines in any sermon. He says, don't say you're never going to see the Alps. Don't you know that there are mountains in God? Don't you know there are mountains in God? Don't you think there are in him infinitely greater things than the majestic mountains of this world? Don't you think that in God there is family, love, love infinitely greater than any spousal love? You are not going to miss out on anything at all because he is the firstborn from the dead. The first breaker in a tidal wave of immortality. So don't let the fear of death control you. People who don't fear death can give themselves away to lost causes. People who don't fear death can risk their reputations to love the outcasts. People who don't fear death can stay with the chronically ill in love. People who don't fear death can support ministry to those with Alzheimer's disease. People who don't fear death can prepare week in and week out for a one-person Bible study. It's what we have to offer the world, is it not? A love unrestrained by success. A love unrestrained by timetables. A love unrestrained by ambitions because we know what's coming. 
He's the firstborn from the dead. And by his resurrection from the dead, he is the new beginning. And the purpose of this new beginning is that he will become in us, in fact, what he is, first, preeminent in every way. And Paul goes on, he says, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Now for Bible nerds, when you put fullness of God and pleased to dwell in the same line, that's temple glory language. That's Shekinah glory language. That's the language that's used when when, when God's presence comes and fills the temple. It's Psalm 68, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. It's it's the Shekinah, the center of forgiveness and life. The glory that would come in the great moments of deliverance. The glory that left in the moments of great pain and disobedience. All the fullness of God now come not in a building but in a man, in a person, in Jesus. Now a person is the one in whom the living God dwells. And he is building a new kind of temple. A temple not made by human hands, but a temple consisting of human beings in whom God's living presence would be known and accessed on the earth. And so in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, it says this. Now just listen. It says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And then listen next. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. He is the fullness and he is filling us up so that we can be his presence here on earth. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by by the blood of his cross. So the climax of the poem comes here. Jesus made peace by the blood of his cross. The horror of human history is that God made us to bear his image and his image rebelled against him. We made war on the very one we were created to display. We distrusted the one who was infinitely trustworthy. We chose to go our own way, we cut off the head, the one who gives us life. And that's why we live in a world of war and chaos and conflict and disaster and disease. But when the eternal Son of God came and took on flesh, his mission was not to make war. (laughs) It was to make peace reconciliation to heal the relationships that had been broken most of all our relationship with God 
And Paul says in Christ that through the blood of his cross, all things are reconciled. Not just you. All things are reconciled. All creation has fallen under a curse. But through Christ, God breaks the power of sin and death and he begins to restore all things. Things in heaven and on earth. All of it God's doing. All of it by his grace. He's doing it for his good pleasure. And he's doing it through us. The message of Christianity, friends, is nowhere more remarkable than what it claims here about the death of Jesus and what it means for the world and the church. The claim here is that the fundamental disharmony in the universe, the dissonance in the totality of all things, The discord in our lives and in all created existence has been put right by the blood of his cross. It's an astonishing thing to say. Even more astonishing is him saying that the way this new creation project moves forward is in your life and mine. I just have this quote from New Testament theologian uh, James Dunn. I think he hits it right on the head. He says about this passage, the vision is vast. The claim is mind-blowing. It says much for the faith of these first Christians that they should see in Christ's death and resurrection quite literally the key to resolving the disharmonies of nature and the inhumanities of humankind, that the character of God's creation and God's concern for the universe in its fullest Expression could be so caught and encapsulated for them in the cross of Christ. But in some ways, still more striking is the implied vision of the church as the focus and means towards this cosmic reconciliation. The community in which that reconciliation has already taken place or begun to take place And whose responsibility it is to live it out as well as to proclaim its secret. That just hits it on the head. So now let's think about this poem as a whole. We're bringing it to a close. The mileage that one gets from this poem is not merely to make sure that Christians believe the right stuff about Jesus. But to see Jesus and ourselves as a part of a story of both creation and reconciliation. The story of the church and of individual Christians themselves are written up in a narrative about a world made good, gone wrong, and being put right through the church, through Christ and his body. As they stay connected to their head. And so I guess I want to end back with the the box of the puzzle. And what we were saying is what the the box is to the puzzle is what the, the scripture is to the church. But now I want to say is it's what the, it's also what the church is meant to be to the watching world. A picture of what it looks like when Christ is king. 
a picture of what it looks like when people get a fresh start. A picture of what it looks like when people don't fear death. An embodied expression of what it looks like when all of the fragmented pieces of our lives begin to come together and find meaning and cohesion in Christ. You can imagine all of the scattered pieces of our world on some cosmic dining room table. And here's the piece of the puzzle called sex. Alone, broken, and people are trying to fit that place, all kinds of things. And getting all kinds of confused. But we get to put it where it belongs. In relationship to the person of Christ. And we get to see the gift of sex in relationship to the picture of a covenant God who gave himself for us in the context of a committed, promised covenant. Oh, over here on the table, piece called money. Money can take us all kinds of places and by itself it has little to no meaning at all. But we get to put that piece and we get to connect it to the person of Christ, the one who was so rich but gave it up all, gave it up so that those in poverty could become rich. Oh, and over here is this piece called power. Think about how we're misusing power, all the little ways we're trying to climb our little social ladders to get into first place. We get to play take that little piece called power and we get to connect it in to the larger picture of Christ and to say here is a family where to have power and influence you go to the bottom and you lift people up. Christ and connecting everything to Christ so that people can see what life is like when Christ is king. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn above all creation. He is the beginning. He holds all things together. And he is the head of the church, his body. He's the firstborn from the dead. He is preeminent in all things. And in him, all things are being reconciled through the blood of his cross. Amen? Let me pray for us. Gracious Heavenly Father, what a, what a poem. What a vision. Grand in scale. Cosmic. I pray that it would land with us in our individual lives, which can seem so broken and scattered. All the pieces of our lives looking for meaning, looking for coherence, looking for a place. And you are the reconciler, the one who gives us the way. You are the way, the truth, and the life. And you bring the broken parts of our lives, the scattered and fragmented pieces of this world, and you're putting it together to create something beautiful, a picture that will ultimately be for our good and your glory. And so, Lord, I pray that we can expand our vision of what we're talking about when we talk about being the church. 
that we can move beyond personal sin management. <laughs> to, to ask the God, our God, to help us be this. Not just get through a day, not just feel better about ourselves, but to be our head and the source of our life so that we can be a new creation people who don't fear death, who can offer fresh starts to those around us, who can be a reconciling force in a broken world. That's what we're being called into. What if we prayed about that? What if we prayed for the power to do this? Lord, we thank you that we can start again, even now. And we can expand our vision of who you are and who we are in you. We give you praise and thanks in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.